Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 35, the book of Acts, chapter 15, the second continuation. As we continue our examination of the book of Acts, chapter 15, I'm going to remind you that we are spending an inordinate amount of time here because this chapter is so crucial to a correct understanding of our faith. But this chapter is also divisive because there are perhaps more differing church doctrines derived from this chapter than perhaps most any other chapter in the New Testament. And since there are a number of opposing church doctrines about the topics that are addressed here, then obviously they can't all be correct. But on the other hand, could it be that none of these differing doctrines are right? That is, that not a single mainstream institutional church doctrine has it right concerning the meaning of the outcome of Acts chapter 15? You can be the judge of that. Once we've concluded the study of Acts chapter 15. Now we've worked diligently to establish the proper context for dissecting this chapter which is all about the famous Jerusalem Council uh, meeting to decide on, on, on what basis that Gentiles could be included in this Hebrew faith of believers in Yeshua of Nazareth. Now to put a finer point on it, what does this chapter tell Gentiles especially? Our obligation is to the law of Moses. And to ascertain this, we've got on a few detours to flesh out the, the various of the main characters in this chapter, the true meaning and ultimate effect of circumcision, what the social and political circumstances of the day were, who Paul is, why he thinks as he does. Now, I want to spend a moment explaining the organization and methodology of the Jerusalem Council itself. Now I've said on a few occasions that it is a fundamental error to read this Jewish document, Acts chapter 15, constructed within the confines of a Jewish society, and to this point played out mostly by Jewish people, as though Jewish culture and historical context play no role in interpreting it. And when we read and interpret these words through a 21st century Gentile mindset, we can distort the situation and the meaning of what actually occurred. Thus, notice in Acts 15 how religious doctrinal decisions were made. It was done by means of a leadership council. The leadership council consisted of some unspecified number of men. It was probably 12. And when for whatever reason there was a vacancy on the council, the remaining members nominated a replacement 
and then voted on a majority rules basis. We saw this exact same thing happen in the opening chapter of uh, Acts. And what we see happening in Acts 15 is that the leadership council of the way is meeting in private session. And after those leaders have had a chance to contribute to the discussion, then a decision is rendered based on a majority rules, meaning the majority of the council, on a majority rules basis. Of course, it is typical that the supreme leader's opinion, who in this case is James, carries much weight as to what the others on the council will decide. Now, why did the leaders of the way organize themselves in such a manner? Because it's precisely how the Sanhedrin operated. It's also how the various leadership councils of each of the sects of Judaism operated. We must go forward understanding uh, that, that what is happening within the Jerusalem Council meeting is in no way a repudiation of Judaism or how Judaism was governed or was it an attempt to establish an organizational structure that was entirely new and unique and it's critical to understand that the issues that this Jerusalem Council of Believers was dealing with in Acts 15 were quite narrow in their scope. Very narrow, in fact. Very specific. Very targeted. And the manner in which they dealt with them was customary for Jewish culture in the first century A.D. Now the mindset of the Jerusalem Council members was much like it is today in the mainstream church in America. All but the oldest established church systems in America operate actually quite democratically. Even though there is inevitably a leadership council, most serious matters are brought before the membership at large and is voted upon with a majority decision settling the matter. Some churches even choose their pastor in this way. Now a couple of years ago, a member of this congregation came to me and told me he was quite upset because the membership didn't get to vote. And he reminded me, we live in America. And America is a democracy. And in America, citizens vote. And unless the way this body is governed is changed to something more democratic, he was leaving. And I explained that the seat of Abraham is ruled by an elder board. And we have five members who decide policy and financial matters and who vote with a majority rules outcome. And that if you'll look at the New Testament, you will see that this is precisely the way it was done in Yeshua's day with the early church. He did not see that as an acceptable way to proceed within the mold of an American-style democracy and society, and he followed through with his threat. Now, it seemed unthinkable to him, un-American, if you would, to do it any other way. He had fought for America in the Korean War. He felt that democracy belonged as the governing method of the church, 
as well as for American government. Now I tell you this not as a criticism of this person, but rather to say that members of groups often expect to organize and come to decisions based on the norms and customs of whatever society we're part of. It is simply an unconscious assumption. It's a a knee-jerk reaction. To do what is always done in our particular society seems right. To do otherwise can feel wrong. Point being that everything we see happening at this Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 was normal and customary within Judaism in the Holy Land for that day. There was no controversy over this governing body, not even its protocols. There is no attempt by the leadership to declare the standard way of Jewish religious institutions doing business and coming to decisions as wrong and now a new way is being created. There is no thought by the leadership of the way to separate themselves from mainstream Judaism. Quite the contrary. The only part of mainstream Second Temple Judaism that they wished to challenge was the part that denied Yeshua. And so we're still waiting for the Messiah to come. The remaining laws and observances, such as sacrificing at the temple, tithing, kosher eating, participating in the festivals, honoring Shabbat, these all went on uninterrupted, unchanged among the believers. In fact, in Acts 21, a demonstration of Paul's continuing allegiance to normative Judaism was arranged by James so that those Jewish skeptics who accused Paul of abandoning the principles of of Judaism and denouncing the law of Moses could be publicly refuted. Paul gladly accepted that challenge and he went to the temple to conduct a standard vow-offering sacrifice that's done in accordance with the strictest rules of the halakha, of the Jewish law of his day. So with that in mind now, that is a background. Let's reread a section of Acts 15. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we will begin on page um, 1382. 1382. Acts chapter 15, we're going to start at verse 19. Pardon me. We're just going to read through verse 29. 19 to 29. Therefore, my opinion is, we should not put obstacles in the way of the Goyim, the Gentiles, who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled, and from blood. For from the earliest times, Moshe has had, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, with his words being read in the synagogues every Shabbat. Then the emissaries and the elders, together with the whole Messianic community, decided to select men from among themselves to send to Antioch with Shaul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judah, called Bar-Sabah, and Silah, 
both leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. From the emissaries and the elders, your brothers. To the brothers from among the Gentiles throughout Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings! We have heard that some people went out from among us without our authorization and that they have upset you with their talk unsettling your minds. So we've decided unanimously to select men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Shoal who have dedicated their lives to upholding the name of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. So we have sent Judah and Sila, and they will confirm in person what we are writing. For it seemed good to the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, and to us, not to lay any heavier burden on you than the following requirements. To abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, from things strangled, from fornication. If you keep yourselves from these, you'll be doing the right thing. Well, after listening to the various viewpoints of the, the, this issue of admitting Gentiles to the congregation of believers, James, the supreme leader, sums up how he believes that the council ought to rule on this matter. Let's be clear now on the core issue that the council was debating. And we find that just a few verses earlier in chapter 15 and verses 5 and 6. It says, But some of those who had come to trust were from the party of the Parushim, the, the Pharisees, and they stood up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the Torah of Moses. So the emissaries and the elders met to look into this matter. What is the stated matter that Luke says is why the council in Jerusalem was convened? It's a thorny issue of circumcision for Gentile believers. But what we have learned is what is the result of what, what happens when a Gentile is circumcised? He becomes an official Jew. He ceases being a Gentile. And what is it that fundamentally changes when he becomes an official Jew? Since he's no longer a Gentile, then he is no longer considered inherently ritually unclean. Provided he follows all the laws of Jewish halakha that all the Jews are required to follow, regarding ritual purity. So, James' recommendation and what was ultimately decided actually concerns the bottom line issue of ritual purity. And for mainstream Judaism, circumcision, that was the solution for the inherent ritual defilement that was the supposed natural lot for Gentiles. Why is ritual purity so important to Judaism? Because ritual defilement is shameful. It can be most inconvenient to go through the process of returning oneself to a state of ritual purity and one person's defilement can be transmitted to others by physical contact. So if uncircumcised Gentile believers are still inherently unclean, then 
they certainly can't be allowed near to Jewish believers, the circumcised people, let alone could they be allowed into synagogues. Now to backtrack just a bit so we don't get lost in a forest full of facts, after Peter's vision and experience in Acts 10 of this sheet of animals being let down from heaven, and then watching as this Gentile Roman army officer Cornelius and all his household had the Holy Spirit fall upon them, Peter came to realize the folly of the Jewish man-made tradition that Gentiles were inherently unclean. In Acts 10, 34 and 35, then Kepha, Peter, addresses them, I now understand that God does not play favorites. But whoever fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him, no matter what, the, what people he belongs to. Please notice, God didn't change anything. God didn't change anything. Rather, God demanded that Judaism, beginning with the believers, change to reflect His will. Some months and years later, Peter brought that same message to this Jerusalem council. So when it became his turn to speak on the matter of circumcision for Gentile believers, he said this to his fellow leaders. We find this again Acts 15, this is verses 6 through 9. The emissaries and the elders met to look into this matter, and after a lengthy debate, Kepha, Peter, got up and said to them, Brothers, you yourselves know that a good while back God chose me from among you to be the one by whose mouth the Goyim, the Gentiles, should hear the message of the good news and come to trust. And God, who knows the heart, bore them witness by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as He did to us. That is, He made no distinction between us and them, but He cleansed their heart by trust. Then as the debate in Jerusalem was drawing to a close, James stands up and he concludes in Acts 15, 19 and 20. Therefore, my opinion is we should not put obstacles in the way of the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write them a letter telling them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from fornication, from what is strangled and from, from, strangled and from, uh, and from blood. Now, notice how it says the Gentiles, the Goyim, who are turning to God. Is this referring to God-fearers? Gentiles who had already accepted Judaism and the Jewish God but are now becoming believers in Yeshua as well? No. This is referring to pagan Gentiles. Those who had been worshipping one of the many false gods. But due to the message of the apostles, they are now in the process, the process of turning to God. In a sense, they've begun the process, but they're, they're not all the way there yet. They understand very little. However, in some miraculous way, they do understand just enough so that they know they need salvation and that this Jewish Messiah, Yeshua, He is the answer. 
in today's vernacular, we would call these people seekers. Using the wonderful New Testament metaphor of being born again, these people have just exited the birth canal. So James agrees with Peter, and of course with Paul and with Barnabas, that it would be counterproductive, it would be a counterproductive impediment to require very much from these Gentiles who only recently accepted Christ after lifetimes of worshiping false gods. For one reason, they don't know anything about Holy Scripture. They have no familiarity with the prophets or with the Torah. They've not been attending a synagogue. This entire thing was new to them. They didn't know the concepts. They didn't know the words. They didn't know the history. They didn't know anything. Yet the witness of the Holy Spirit confirms that their trust and belief in Yeshua is real and sincere. But even more, these Gentiles live in foreign lands, long way from Jerusalem. So what should the way require of them? The important thing was to get them trained in the ways of Jehovah. But mainstream Jewish halakha said that Gentiles, the uncircumcised, can't get too near Jews. And of course shouldn't enter into a synagogue lest they, they pollute everyone and everything with their inherent Gentile uncleanness. Why is entering a synagogue going to be so important? Why, why is that the big deal for these new Gentile believers? Because it's in the synagogues where they will learn God's word. So deduces James in verse 21 because from the earliest times Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him with his words being read in the synagogues every Shabbat. In other words, the council will immediately require of them that they do the four listed things as sort of a basic allowable minimum. However, because they are, there, there are synagogues everywhere in foreign lands where Moses has his words, the Torah, read and taught every Shabbat, then there's plenty of resources available for these Gentiles to learn about Holy Scripture in order to obey God and live this new redeemed life. It doesn't have to occur practically overnight, all at once. Because even if it was demanded of the Gentiles, it's physically impossible. But why those particular four things? Why those four things that James chose? Because with the new understanding that Peter brought to the council, that contrary to Jewish tradition, God says that Gentiles are not inherently unclean. But that still doesn't mean that Gentiles are immune from becoming unclean through their wrong behavior. Just like Jews can become unclean by their wrong behavior. That is, these new believing Gentiles must meet some required minimum standards 
of ritual purity so that they can be considered ritually clean enough by Jewish standards. Otherwise, they can't enter into synagogues where they can be assimilated into the believing community. And most importantly, where they can be taught the Torah. Now the four things that Gentiles must not do. Now notice these are all what's called negative commandments. That is, these are things they must not do as opposed to things that they must do. Among these four things are, first, abstain from things polluted by idols. Second, refrain from fornication. Third, do not eat animals that have been strangled to death. And fourth, refrain from blood. So did James just kind of, I don't know, make these rules up? Did he figure it out on his own? That foreign Gentiles must not do those four things if they want to be associated with Israel? No. He took it directly from the Torah. In Leviticus, we read this. In Leviticus 17, verses 8 through 14. Also tell them, when someone from the community of Israel or one of the foreigners living with you offers a burnt offering or a sacrifice without bringing it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to Adonai, that person should be cut off from his people. When someone from the community of Israel or one of the foreigners living with you eats any kind of blood... I will set myself against that person who eats blood and cut him off from his people. For the life of a creature is in the blood and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for yourselves. For it is the blood that makes atonement because of the life. This is why I told the people of Israel, none of you is to eat blood, nor is any foreigner living with you to eat blood. And when someone from the community of Israel or one of the foreigners living with you hunts and catches game whether animal or bird that may be eaten, he is to pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature, its blood is its life. Therefore I said to the people, you're not to eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is in the blood and whoever eats it will be cut off. First, this says that only meat offered before the altar of God can even be eaten. The logical conclusion being that meat that's offered to idols can't be eaten because the meat offered to idols can't also be offered to God. Second, the slaughter of animals according to Torah law must be quick, humane, and done in a way such as to completely drain that creature of its blood. The reason that pagans strangled animals to death to eat them was not to be exceptionally cruel. Rather, it is precisely so that the blood would remain in the animal. That's why they did it. Then the animal would be aged by hanging. That is, the animal flesh would be allowed to decay a little with the blood still in the animal. And after just a few days, the animal would be taken down, skinned, and butchered. This produced a particularly desirable flavor that pleased the palate of many cultures. However, it violated the law of Moses. 
But for our purposes, what is the result of disobeying these four particular laws of Moses? The offender becomes ritually unclean. And notice that this applies not only to the community of Israel, but also to the foreigners living with you. Gentiles. As to the prohibition against fornication, immediately Leviticus chapter 18 deals with sexual immorality. And remember, when the scriptures were originally written, there were no such things as chapters and verses. They have been artificially added many centuries later just by scholars just to make study and reference easier. So there's no break between Leviticus chapter 17 and 18. So Leviticus 18 begins, Adonai said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them, I am Adonai your God. You're not to engage in the activities found in the land of Egypt where you used to live. And you are not to engage in the activities found in the land of Canaan where I'm bringing you. Nor are you to live by their laws. You are to obey my rulings and laws and live accordingly. I am Adonai, your God. You are to observe my laws and rulings. And if a person does them, he will have life through them. I am Adonai. None of you is to approach anyone who is a close relative in order to have sexual relations. I am Adonai. You are not to have sexual relations with your father. You are not to have sexual relations with your mother. She is your, she is your mother. Do not have sexual relations with her. And then the next several verses list more prohibited sexual activities. The term fornication in the New Testament was used in two ways. One way was meant in its technical sense, which means to have unlawful sexual intimacy between unmarried people. But the second way is that it became a general catch-all term that referred to all prohibited immoral sexual activity between humans, married or unmarried. That's the sense of it as it's meant here. The catch-all phrase. It was a general instruction prohibiting sexual immorality of any kind. And of course what was deemed immoral, and don't let this pass you by, What was deemed immoral was defined where? By the Torah. Not by the social norms of these former pagans' cultures. The point's this. Far from James abolishing the law for Gentile believers and sort of manufacturing his own rules as he saw fit for Gentile believers, he pronounced that the law as found in Leviticus also applies to these Gentile believers, circumcised or not. And what are the common traits regarding all four of these rules? One, they were for Israel and for the foreign Gentiles that attached themselves to Israel. They were to obey them all. And two, violating any of these four laws resulted in what? Ritual defilement. But now let's address this matter from a merely common sense perspective. Sadly, 
It's been the institutional church's position for many centuries that first, James abolished the law for Gentiles and he established a new set of rules just for Christians. And two, that these four things represent the sum total that Gentile believers are obligated to obey. That's it. Now ask yourself a simple question. If that's the case, then I suppose murder and manslaughter are now okay for Gentile believers, right? I mean, stealing and fraud must be okay. Because James doesn't say anything about it. Coveting must be okay. Drunkenness, assault and battery, homosexuality, abortion, polygamous marriage or no marriage at all. And on and on and on. Because none of those things are mentioned here. Well, our common sense says that can't possibly be the case. But the standard response then to this rhetorical question I just asked is always, well, if Christ instructed us about something, then we have to add that to James's list. But if he doesn't say it, then that's all we're obligated to. Well, then let's think that through for a moment. If that's so, then what about this famous instruction from the lips of our Savior that's been quoted here hundreds of times in Matthew 5, 17 through 19? Do not think that I've come to abolish the Torah of the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uter or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah. Nothing until everything that has happened has happened. So whoever disobeys the least of these commandments and he teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Did Yeshua not just instruct all of his followers to obey the law? Just as it was formulated, just as it was formulated long before he came, with no changes at all, he said. If we're only to go by the four things that James instructed, and then add whatever Christ instructed, we find ourselves right back at square one. Because Christ's instruction is, he did not abolish any minor or major element of the law, and that if anyone, notice it said, anyone, not any Jew, anyone teaches that it's okay to disobey the law or she or he purposely does not obey the law because they have decided it just doesn't apply to them then they should be considered the least in the kingdom of heaven considered the least by whom? by Jesus Christ I mean I readily admit that Yeshua does not say that disobeying the law excludes you from the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't say that. So obeying the law is not a requirement to become saved. Nor within certain boundaries is it required to stay saved. We are saved by grace and grace alone. But disobeying the law has a name. It's called sin. And this is re-emphasized, by the way, as such in 1 John 3, 4. 
and Messiah, thank the Lord, atoned for our sins. However, if you'd like to receive any rewards in heaven at all, if you'd like to hear our Lord and Savior greet you with these welcome words of well done, faithful servant, you've run a good race, then he says you must use the intended spirit of the law of Moses as your standard of living and behavior. You must. A law, he says, during his Sermon on the Mount, that he did not come to abolish, not even to change in the slightest way. A law, he says, that he fully expects us to follow if we intend to enter heaven with anything but the least status possible to be accepted there in the first place. Everything that Yeshua said, his brother James is following and not undoing. First, James says that circumcision, which meant becoming a Jew, is not needed for these Gentile seekers to be saved. It was trust that saved the Jews. So now that same trust will save the Gentiles. Second, even though these Gentiles are now saved, and they remain as Gentiles, uncircumcised, ritual purity still matters. Ritual purity is still required of them, starting with adhering to the four listed prohibitions, all of them taken directly from the Law of Moses. But later, since the entire word of Moses, the Torah, is taught in synagogues throughout the known world, these ritually clean foreign Gentile believers who begin their walk with Yeshua by following these four basic rules can now also attend synagogues. Now they can be taught the rest of the Law of Moses. And over time over time, they can begin to adhere to more and more of it as they mature. I mean, to, to, to better enable you to make a decision for yourself of what all this means for modern Christians and Messianics, I'll add this comment and then I'm going to give you my opinion. These four rules are not only taken directly from Leviticus in the Law of Moses as I just showed you, they also represent four of the basic laws of natural law. And in Judeo-Christianity, a traditional name for natural law is the Noahide Laws. Now let me say clearly, you will not find the subject heading of the Noahide Laws in the Bible. It's not there nor specific organized listing of natural laws and or Noahide laws in the Bible. Rather, they have been deduced by the great Jewish sages of old and, frankly, by the early church fathers. Now, the impact of the natural law or the Noahide law is that it was created before there was a division of humanity into Hebrews and Gentiles. So, these laws are universal. 
in the Talmud, Tractate Sanhedrin 56a, we get this statement on the subject. Our rabbis taught, The sons of Noah were given seven commandments, practicing justice and abstaining from blasphemy, idolatry, adultery, bloodshed, robbery, and eating flesh from, torn from a live animal. Rabbi Hananiah ben Gamliel said, Also do not drink blood taken from a live animal. And of course, as we read in Leviticus 17 and 18, these specific laws that James pronounced in Acts 15 were specifically said to be not only for Hebrews, but also for the foreign Gentiles that attached themselves to Israel. Have Christian Gentiles attached themselves, ourselves, to Israel? says we did whether we realize it or not whether we want to acknowledge it or not in Romans 11 Romans 11 you can follow along or just hear me verses 13 through 24 listen carefully to this however to those of you who are Gentiles I say this since I myself am an emissary sent to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work and hope that somehow I can provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting Him mean? It will be life from the dead. Now, if the challah offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, then so are its branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, you, a wild olive, were grafted in among them, and you've now become equal shares in that rich root of the olive tree, then don't boast as if you're better than the branches. However, if you do boast, remember... You are not supporting the root, the root supporting you. So you'll say, well, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified. Because if God did not spare His natural branches, He's not going to spare you. So take a good look at God's kindness and His severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off. On the other hand, God's kindness towards you, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Moreover, the others, if they do not persist in their lack of trust, will be grafted in, because God is able to graft them back in. Because if you were cut out from what is by nature a wild olive tree and you were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted right back into their own olive tree? See, my opinion then is this. What the Jerusalem Council decided is that circumcision of Gentiles in order to maintain uh, to, uh, to attain and then maintain ritual purity is not needed. It never was. Circumcision was not an issue of ritual. 
there was an issue of conversion from being a Gentile to being a Jew. So the final decision was one did not have to be a Jew to be saved by Yeshua. Nor does one have to be a Jew to be ritually clean. However, the biblical purity laws do matter for Christian Gentiles from the standpoint of following God's law and thus rightly affecting our behavior. Did James go against his brother Yeshua's teaching that he had not come to abolish the law? No. James merely chose four basic commandments from the law of Moses that also reflected reflected the basic principles of natural law, Noahide law, which especially the newest and the least indoctrinated of these these Gentile believers are to follow, even if they don't understand why. However, as these new believers mature over time, their maturity is to come primarily from learning God's Word, beginning with the Torah. And by definition, this is a lifelong learning process. From the first days of Seed of Abraham Torah class, my board can tell you that our goal has not been to address seekers. Although, praise the Lord, we've indeed seen many come to Messiah here. Almost all modern churches have decided to mold their messages and services around seekers. And I think they generally do a good job of it. Rather, we're about maturing those who already believe in the God of Israel and that love His Son, Jesus Christ. But that maturing in our faith necessarily involves learning God's Torah along with all of His Word, Old and New Testaments. And that also necessarily means obeying His laws and commandments as best we can in whatever stage of our journey with Him we might be and within the best understanding of how to live out the spirit of those laws in a modern Western culture and within the circumstances of our time and history. That's all we have. We'll continue with Acts 15 next time.